Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. And today we are tackling a topic that is actually the first topic that I ever covered at How Stuff Works. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I was hired four years ago, uh, the first thing that I ever worked on was a video series called Stuff of Genius. And the first video that I proposed that we do <laughs> was about Jack Parsons. And Wait, this was your first assignment right out of the, out of the game? It was sort of like, they didn't really give me assignments so much as they were like, build the show. And so uh, my producer, Paul, who's still here with us and works on a lot of our projects, the two of us got together and we had like five ideas and Parsons was one of them. And we went to this library that I was working at part-time and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, we shot a couple of these. It was real bizarre, super embarrassing. It's all still on YouTube. <laughs> but like, I played this weird, like, sort of doctor character who was oh, like, beard, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still had uh, facial hair back then, mm-hmm. and I wore like a suit, and I stood between like collapsing library shelves, and did an episode on Jack Parsons because. I was actually just interested in Jack Parsons and had just finished reading a book that actually we're going to reference a lot today, which is called Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons. It's written by George Pendle. Pendle is going to come up a lot in the literature today. He is like the go-to guy on, on Parsons. So we're going to dive right into it here. Let me tell you something about Jack Parsons. Jack Parsons was a man who wanted to break free from the confines of the early 20th century. As author George Pendle points out, quote, Parsons had his rocketry as well as his normal life. He discovered other worlds by imagining going in a rocket to the moon. He wanted to explore this new frontier. He saw both space and magic as ways of exploring these new frontiers, one breaking free from Earth literally and metaphysically. Yeah, that's a good way to encapsulate it. He... He is one of these characters, we occasionally, I'd say like maybe once a month, once every two months, hit upon these fascinating characters from history that are a weird amalgamation of scientific insight and like occultism. Yeah, I think we've called them uh, the counterculture Avengers before. Yeah, Parsons would definitely be on there. Although he's a little bit before the time of a lot of the folks that we've covered. I think that's one of the shames here is that he feels like it feels like he would have been more at home uh, living alongside, uh, you know, John C. Lilly. Yeah. And and part of the more, you know, the more mainstream counterculture uh, resurgence of the 1960s. But he didn't Mm -hmm. live that long. Yeah. I kept thinking of John C. Lilly going over this research again. I think they would have been fast friends. Yeah. And he also, as we'll discuss, reminds me a lot of John D., Dr. John D. from uh, Elizabethan times. Yeah. So, who was Jack Parsons? Because so, I, I know a number of you just have, are, are still confused who we're even talking about. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, he was a rocket engineer. He helped found both the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, or JPL, and the Aerojet Engineering Corporation. He pioneered the use of liquid and solid rocket fuels and actually built the first rocket engine to run on castable composite rocket propellant. And at the same time, he was a figure of counterculture mystery, consumed by occultist ideas, uh, sex, and alternative political models. Yeah, so if you have heard of him, or if this is all of a sudden like you're going, oh, wait, I think I know what they're talking about. It's because of that, because he has been... Uh, launched up to this sort of legendary figure status after his death. 
I think, though, really it peaked maybe in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then Pendle came out with this book, I want to say in 2006, maybe. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about Parsons is that what he's certainly been celebrated and held up by you know such counterculture voices as Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, I, I think I have no fewer than three individuals on my friends list who have worked on plays, comics, or other fi- fictional, fictional treatments of Parsons. Yeah. Like, he's taken on this heroic form in that scene. And yet, at the same time, he has often been downplayed in the scientific community, and his his legitimate contributions there are often a, a bit forgotten. Actually, purposely erased, as yeah. some people accuse them. Pendle, among them, says that uh, at first he was a footnote in the history of the JPL, and then he was even erased from the footnotes. And again, he reminds me of Dr. John Dee in many ways. He's, he's this contradiction uh, standing on the barrier between science and magic. Uh, Pendle puts it this way. Parsons seemed devoted to reconciling opposites, smashing together the technical and the spiritual, the white lab coat and the black robe, fact and fiction, science and magic. Yeah, so Parsons actually found magic and rocketry to be similar in the sense that both at the time that he was working on them were disparaged and derided as being impossible, but both also presented him with a challenge. And I also think this is an important note uh, that I think I got from Pendle's uh, writing, although there was a lot of research for this episode. Uh, Parsons saw himself as being part of a lineage of scientists that stretched all the way back to Newton. He thought of himself as being more of a natural philosopher. So, of course, he saw everything from magic to poetry as part of what being a scientist was. Again, very much like John Dee and his contemporaries, and that it wasn't just like scientific rigor, but also just sort of being uh, a renaissance man, I suppose you could put it. Uh, and so that's why, I mean, he, he has a book of poetry that you can go out and buy right now. Uh, I guess it's still available. Uh, yeah, it's, it's still available. I don't know if you can get it on Amazon, okay. uh, but it's out there. Yeah, well, I have notes about it at the end of the episode. But And then, of course, was doing all this magical stuff as well. Um, why don't we start off with his early life, though, and kind of work our way up to the crazy, kinky stuff? Yeah, yeah, hit us with the the basic deets, the basic origin story here. So... He's born in Pasadena, California in 1914, and his actual first name was Marvel. Um, and he was named after his father. His father was also Marvel Parsons. Uh, so his real name was Marvel Whiteside Parsons. Uh, but when Marvel Sr. abandoned the family after committing adultery, Parsons' mother just started calling him John, and then friends eventually started calling him Jack in later life. So that's why today everybody refers to him as Jack Parsons. Nobody says Marvel Parsons, although, hey, it's a cool name, especially given what we're going to talk about today. Well, that's the way it always is. Give a child a cool name, and they will change it to something mundane. Right. Give a child a mundane name, and they'll hate it their whole life, and maybe change their name to Zargon. <laughs> yeah, we don't know what his actual... I mean, he could have had like uh, nicknames within the Thelemic cult that he was in yeah. like if, if crowley was the beast maybe parsons was something too the critter the, the critter <laughs> so in eighth grade parsons meets his future colleague edward foreman and they become fast friends they're both fans of science fiction at the time this meant jules verne stories and amazing stories magazine they started experimenting with fireworks and constructing their own solid fueled rockets in parsons backyard now an important thing to know here that's not in the notes is that parsons came from a pretty wealthy family that had ties to like old money back east and they were on hard times though so they sort of lived 
in this rich community in Pasadena, but I think like they were barely able to scrape by. And part of that was because his father had left. So they're in his backyard. They're making basically bombs, <laughs> like as little boys do, you know. And this is when he first starts using glue as a binding agent with loose powder. And this becomes important way later on and is really like his key discovery in terms of rocketry and its influence on NASA. So later in life, this is uh, obviously there's no way to corroborate this, but later in life, Parsons claims that when he was 13 years old, he summoned Satan. So he was into like occult ideas, even back to his childhood. Uh, And he called the experience terrifying, but it seems like this was like the sort of uh, instigating event that got him into the occult uh, side by side, along with rocketry. So he's in high school. Him and Foreman are buddies. They're making bombs in the backyard, rockets. Parsons uh, starts working for the Hercules Power Company. He graduates from high school in 1933, and then the two of them go to Pasadena Junior College together, but neither of them graduate. They both end up working at Halifax Explosives, which was a company that was based in the Mojave Desert. Parsons couldn't afford his tuition fees. So this, again, goes to the, you know, the thing of like, he came from old money, but he just, he didn't have the, the wealth to pursue a higher education, like traditionally. Yeah, I think his, his background here with the, with family and money is, is interesting because you see this throughout his life. He does seem to live his life like a guy who, who has come from money and occasionally has access to a lot of money, but uh, inevitably squanders it in one way or another. Yeah, yeah. It does seem to be sort of like the waves in his life are Mm -hmm. up and down with uh, with his finances, but also just like in general, I think because he was raised in this family, like he thought of himself as being upper class, even though he didn't really have a lot of money. Right. Um, so important going forward too. this whole thing about him never graduating from that college is part of why he was never really accepted as part of the scientific establishment. And Parsons marries his high school sweetheart, Helen Northrup in 1935. This leads us into his experiences with rocketry. Yeah, and again, this is a key area because this is this is where he definitely had, you know, outside of his his later effects on popular culture, uh, this is where he had an impact on the world. Yeah, so you know, he's important uh, as an innovator. I don't want you to think that this is like a guy who just fiddled around with rockets and then also was a magician, right? Like, yeah, he has an important legacy in the history of rocketry, together with a group of other rocket enthusiasts that were unfortunately named the Suicide Squad. That's even more unfortunate now that we have a movie, <laughs> a terrible movie with that name. But uh, Parsons developed a solid rocket fuel that has evolved into the same kind of stuff that we now use to fire objects into space. So the solid motor on the space shuttle, the motors in the Minuteman missile, those were both based on the solid propellant technology that Parsons invented. And here's how the story goes. He and Foreman go down to the California Institute of Technology for a lecture, and they meet Theodore von Karman of the Guggenheim Aeronautical Laboratories of the California Institute of Technology. For short, that's referred to as 
Galsit, I believe. Now, I want to throw in, everyone has heard of Werner von Braun, and you may have sort of von in your in your mind as being like German rocketry. Uh, but uh, this individual, um, uh, von Karman, he, um, he was Hungarian. Yes. Yeah. Although Werner von Braun was a correspondent with Parsons and yeah. did admire his work. Yeah, yeah, and spoke up for him mm-hmm. in later years. Uh, so von Karman introduces Parsons and Foreman to Frank Molina, who's a student at Caltech. And it turns out they're all interested in developing rockets, but no one takes them seriously because at the time, everybody was like, rockets? That's science fiction. Like, that's that's goofy stuff. Uh, it's considered a joke or insanity. Like, if you're actually going to try to, like, blow your way, blow yourself up to the moon or something like that. Well, the crazy thing is that all of these rocket scientists of the day were heavily inspired by science fiction, Werner totally. von Braun included. Yeah. So there's, it's, it's, uh, it's used as a, you know, to, to say that what they're doing isn't important, but it's also, in a way, the guiding light of what they're doing. It reminds me of an experience that we had when we did one of our live shows. We performed at a Star Trek convention. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think I've told this story on air before, but this is fun. But So lots of people know, like, Star Trek had a great influence on people getting involved in science. Yeah. Uh, and in the same way that these early science fiction stories had an influence on Parsons' generation, right before we went on stage, I was in the bathroom and this guy came in and asked me what we were doing. Uh, and I, when I told him him, you know, what our podcast was and what we were covering. He lectured me on this and wanted to make sure that I knew that how many people in the audience knew more about science than I did before we got up <laughs> on stage. Okay. So anyways, Von Karman uh, approves their research, basically, even though these uh, Foreman and Parsons aren't even students, but they, they file it all under Molina's PhD pr- proposal. Uh, and Von Karman himself remembers Parson as a, quote, delightful screwball. So they begin experimenting on the campus, but they have two explosive accidents on the campus. One supposedly left a, like, uh, rebar blown into a wall. Okay, Ooh. like it was that bad. Uh, so they move their experiments near something called Devil's Gate Dam, which is at the edge of Pasadena in the Arroyo Seco. A, it's a dry canyon, basically. And this is where they get the nickname the Suicide Squad because they're just blowing things up constantly and the, the other kids on campus, you know, give them this reputation. But they are eventually joined by several other students. Now, on the rocket testing range, this is a fun fact, Foreman and Parsons were renowned for holding gun duels where they would try to shoot at one another's feet without flinching. So this is already like... This is a guy who's definitely into, like, thrill-seeking and adrenaline, right? Yeah, and it very much seems to have never grown up. Because I, I remember being a kid and, have you know, horsing around with fireworks. I have I have a friend, um, uh, this guy Oz, who has this enormous scar on his arm from being shot with a flaming arrow when oh, he was a child. Wow. Yeah. So <laughs> he seems to have carried that spirit on into his adult life. Uh-huh, yeah. But... In 1938, the U.S. Army comes along and they look at their research and they say, hey, do you want to work on this research project we have? We need to make rocket engines for small aircraft. So the Suicide Squad says, yeah, they try powdered fuel at first, but these rockets that they're they're building are unstable. And the fuel combination that's inside them, basically it's prone to settling when it's in storage containers, which adversely affects the temperature when it launches, so it's unpredictable. The story goes that Parsons 
watched a roofer applying hot asphalt on top of a building, and he remembered the stories from his youth about Greek fire being used as an incendiary weapon. Yeah, this would have been used by the, the Greeks uh, like in, in ship-to-ship combat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like, uh, for those of you who are Game of Thrones fans, it's like the green fire yeah. that they use in that big scene. Uh, so he adds binding agents like hot tar to potassium perchlorite powder, and this provided a clean and even burn so they could put potential of this into what's referred to as jet-assisted takeoff, or is it JATO or just J-A-T-O? Uh, that's, I like JATO. That's yeah. the acronym that's used for it. Uh, and so the military says, all right, we're going to invest a little bit more money in this project, and this leads to the basis for those rockets that launch us into outer space. It's uh, important to note that uh, the JATO, jet-assisted uh, takeoff, and also uh, rocket-assisted takeoff, or RATO, uh, th- th- this was a big deal. And, uh, and indeed, Parsons was instrumental in developing JATO rockets. So the key application during the war, and it's, re- and it's essential to remember that Parsons was born into an era of world war and, uh, and, and ultimately total war. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was to boost the takeoff for military aircraft. Uh, with these, you could actually re- Reduced the reduce the distance required to get a plane off the ground by thirty percent, and uh, I think a lot of us forget about like that this period of history. We just think like, well, planes were invented, and then <laughs> then they became like you know the the commercial airliners that we use today. But it's obviously there were a lot of steps in between, and this was a major one. Yeah, I mean, if you can cut takeoff by thirty percent, you need less uh, takeoff area, you need less landing strip, and the the other cool thing is that this allows you to better utilize uh, a strip that has been damaged by bombs or some other kind of an assault. If, if you're in a war zone, for right, instance. Right, yeah. yeah. And there were a lot of war zones at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the German Luftwaffe at the time also used this approach. And this is a topic I've, I've long found fascinating. They would use rockets to assist the takeoff of intercept planes, such as the amazing jet fighter, the Messerschmitt uh, 262. And they also used it uh, as the engine for the rocket interceptor, uh, the uh, the Messerschmitt 163 Comet. Uh, so this was, with the Germans, this was called the Starthilfe rocket-assisted takeoff unit. And this would have been used 1937, 1938. Uh, there were other planes that used it as well, the Arado 234, which is a jet bomber, and uh, also the, the Messerschmitt 323 Giant also used these. The Giant, for anyone who's not familiar with it, was essentially this enormous, guppy-looking glider. Okay. And... It was used to carry like a massive amount of equipment, and then they adapted it with engines. And they had to, they had to. These were planes where you had to use the the rockets to just get it moving. Right. Okay. I'm picturing like, and I, this isn't even probably a modern equivalent, but like a C5A, like those really big planes that we used to carry uh, mm-hmm. tanks and stuff like that. Yeah. So the U.S. tasked again von Karman and his team, which included Parsons, with developing uh, JATO in 1939. They tested it out. It was implemented. Another key area is that it uh, it helped bombers or cargo planes to take off with incredibly heavy loads. Okay. And in the post-war period, uh, this this kind of rocket boosting this becomes pretty standard for a while due to the low slow speed thrust of existing jet engines. So we get to this point where actually. You know, Parsons makes this discovery, but it's really JPL engineer Charles Bartley who later improves on it by replacing the hot asphalt with thiokol polysulfide polymer. And the team 
is granted a thousand dollars. Woo! At the time, that was a lot. Becoming the first government-funded rocketry research group in history. So you know, everybody was laughing at them and basically saying like, "These guys are idiots. They're just trying to you know replicate some science fiction stories." Uh-huh. But then, like, it turns out like not only is this applicable for wartime, but it's also like a really profitable commercial business. Yeah, and becomes one of the like like rocketry in rocketry technology becomes one of the like the the guiding technical advancements for the rest of the century mm-hmm. and even today. Yeah, they had to use a quarter of that money though, so $250 to pay for the damages that their <laughs> explosions had already caused to the Caltech buildings on that campus. Around that same time, so we're talking 1938 here, Parsons actually gave testimony as an explosive expert in an attempted murder case by Los Angeles's police intelligence chief. Apparently he tried to kill a, a PI huh. and uh, with a bomb. So Parsons reconstructs that bomb and establishes himself as an expert and is like a key witness on the stand. Then in 1940, Parsons and Foreman, I mean, they're no pun intended, but their rockets rising. Yeah. Uh, they are on the cover of Popular Mechanics magazine. 1941, they successfully strap a booster to a small aircraft, ignite it, and that allows the vehicle to take off in half the distance that's usually required. So the U.S. Air Force then is like, we're all in. They fund them very well, and this allows them to found the Aerojet Engineering Corporation. So Parsons was a founding member of that. Now, the Suicide Squad group also founded the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at the California Institute of Technology. We've mentioned that already. But think about this. Like the JPL, you've probably heard the name before. In fact, when we did that Star Trek convention, the JPL had a booth on the floor. Oh, yeah. Uh, They are partner of NASA's, and they help do things like launch Mars rovers, X-ray telescopes, and gravity mapping spaceships. I mean, they are heavily involved in our major scientific endeavors of the day. In 1943, the military actually took over their operations. This is when they changed the name to the JPL. And they developed several weapon development systems that are based on the liquid and solid fuel technology that the Suicide Squad invented. This is the Suicide Squad movie I want to see, is like the, the biopic about these guys. After the war, the military attached a JATO to a German V-2 rocket, and they sent it 70 kilometers straight up, making it the first American rocket to exit the Earth's atmosphere. So this is why NASA then takes over the JPL in 1958. One other thing, this isn't really relevant to all of the Parsons stuff that we're going to talk about today, but many of the Suicide Squad members end up later being investigated and even jailed for supposed ties to communism in the 50s. Yeah, I mean, it can it can be, I think it can be tough to really put ourselves in that 1950s mindset here. But, uh, you know, the Cold War was a time during which the threat of nuclear war was very real. Everything seemed frozen in this terrifying conflict and paranoia was rampant. Entertainers with communist leadings risked being blacklisted. You know, certainly I think everybody's familiar with the Hollywood blacklist. Uh, and, and tales spinning out from that. But academics suspected of communist uh, sympathies could be frozen out as well. So Parsons and many of his colleagues, they lost their security clearance, and this left them unemployed. Parsons, as we'll discuss, was left to pursue other employment options outside of you know central rocketry research. Yeah, and we'll get into that. There's a whole story behind that. 
But there's also the buildup, and this didn't help him either, of his entire involvement in the occult. So let's take a quick break, and when we get back, let's delve into sex magic. All right, we've uh, we've prayed to our our gods, our our pagan gods of advertising here, and now we can start discussing Parsons' involvement with the occult. All right, so why don't you tell everybody about Aleister Crowley? Because this is the toughest <laughs> part, I think, is sort of establishing who Crowley is and sort of what the belief system was. Yeah, and it's it's intimidating to talk about Aleister Crowley because he is a character that, on one level. He defies brief explanation. You yeah. really need to do a deeper dive into him. And at the same time, there's so there's so much conflicting information, even from the man himself, oh, yeah. about who he was, what he was, what he was up to. And, and he, he lived a big life. So he lived, uh, and that life, uh, by the way, it went from 1875 to 1947. So he had a good stretch there. Uh, he was a prime counterculture figure of the day, if not one of the, uh, if not the prime counterculture figure of the day. He engaged in bisexual hedonism, recreational drug use, and, uh, you know, both before either was really fashionable, I, I would say. <laughs> and, uh, and of course, he established his own uh, recreation of ceremonial magic and new paganism. He was also a bit of a, a provocateur and a con man. And I don't mean that as a slam, necessarily, being a con man, because how can you lead your own counterculture, occult movement, and not be at least a little bit carny, right? Also something that's going to be very important as yeah. we discuss Parsons. But uh, this reminds me, we were talking about this before we came to the studio. I've been reading this graphic novel that Douglas Rushkoff wrote called Alistair and Adolf. That's uh-huh. all, I, I think it's semi-fictional, but it's about how Alistair Crowley used his influence in the intelligence community to try to help influence basically uh, the German army so that the allies knew where they were going to be. Yeah, I mean, this included people like um, uh, Ian Fleming. Mm -hmm. uh, He's a character in it, yeah. Also, Dennis Wheatley. Uh, Dennis Wheatley, incidentally, ended up writing the book The Devil Rides Out, which we talk about in our Satanic Panic episode. Right, yeah. Um, Yeah, he... This is a guy, you get the impression that Crowley definitely like, oozed charisma. It was just a fascinating character. Uh, so, yeah, he rubbed elbows with a lot of important people at, at varying points in his life. Yeah. And, in fact, as you have a note here, he's the one who claimed to have invented the V for victory. Yeah. I always thought that that was Churchill. Well, again, this is the thing with Crowley. It's, he, wrote a, he, he, was a, he wrote a lot about himself and about his ideas and uh-huh. his thoughts. And you were just run into the the situation of how much do you trust him? How much of it is just part of his bravado and yeah. this image that he's creating? And how much can you take to the bank? Uh, again, a <laughs> fascinating character, though. The real basics, though, on Crowley, because, man, we could do like a whole podcast series just on Crowley. Oh, yeah. Uh, so early in his life, he joined the occult society known as the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. But he was actually expelled from this for, quote, deviant and homosexual behavior. So this is a guy who's getting kicked out of secret <laughs> magical societies. Uh, then he joins the occult secret society. Apparently, there were... There were a lot of them back then. Ordo Templi Orientis. This is in 1910. He rises up in their ranks and becomes the leader of their English-speaking fraternities. 
and he reinvents their belief system to his own religion called Thelema, or the Thelemic religion. And it's mainly about free love, sex magic, and sort of the idea of, as he called it, do what thou wilt. It was a philosophy of individualism and self-fulfillment, and the sexual rituals that he sort of invented for this were supposed to lift your consciousness to a higher plane. Now, I do want to add that magical exploration of sexual energy itself was nothing new. Mm -hmm. Uh, You find terrific examples of this both in uh, Chinese Taoism and in Indian yogic traditions. Uh, I mean, of particular note, you have uh, the Tantra. Yeah. Yeah, this rose to prominence within uh, Hindu traditions in medieval India around the 5th century. And uh, and it may even go back further to that, to the Indus civilization uh, of uh, 3300 to 1300 BCE. But uh, just to give a, just a quick example of what the, the, the Tantra consisted of, you'd have male and female uh, Tantrikas, and they would, they would bathe, they'd uh, dress and doll up, purify through med- meditation and uh, recitation of uh, mantras. And then they would uh, form into male and female couples. They would, uh, they would unite sexually, and the, this would be the, the pronunciation of mantras turn, turning the, the female partner into the embodiment of a goddess, the male into a god. So on a mythic level, they would reenact the cosmological union of Shiva and, and Shakti, uh, Deva and Devi. And uh, I think all that's rather interesting in light of some of the uh, the activities of Crowley and uh, and uh, Parsons that we'll discuss. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine that Crowley was unaware of tantra or other like mm-hmm. sexual rituals in varying cultures. I feel like, like again, like the whole con man aspect, like like he plucked things from various. Uh, you know, ideas that he had learned about and he sort of molded it together into this super charismatic, uh, cult, I guess. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can look at it two ways. On one hand, if you're selling something to somebody, inevitably you're just taking an existing product, rewrapping it and selling it as something new. Yeah. And then in terms of uh, new religious movements, which we talked about in a recent episode, like all that is doing is you're, you're taking existing ideas and motifs and making them apply to the modern uh, world in a new way, yeah. in a way that connects with modern individuals. And we see somebody else do that to Crowley himself, mm-hmm. not just in a short while. Somebody rather famous. So Crowley actually, uh, here's a fun story about this guy, fakes his own death in 1930 while he's rock climbing in Portugal. And then three weeks later, he reappears and he's like, ha ha, I'm alive. <laughs> um, Parsons, for his part, so... What is what does all this Crowley stuff have to do with Parsons? Parsons was a fan, so Parsons and his wife actually joined the OTO's Pasadena chapter in 1939, and this was called the Agape Lodge. Parsons began corresponding with Crowley, so they're writing letters back and forth to one another on a regular basis. He purchases a mansion in Pasadena and he turns it into a commune of creative types where they're just constantly having these wild parties. Like more than one article that I read about this talked about how like the neighbors hated the fact that Parsons lived there because he would have these like crazy black magic sex parties and like like one of the stories was like something about a naked pregnant woman jumping through like hoops of fire or something like that you know just like who knows if that's real or not but supposedly this house was pretty wild well he was living large in a time when there was a very buttoned down idea of what an individual was supposed to be and how you fit into society. Yeah. And so you've got people hanging out at this place. It's called the Parsonage, by the way. <laughs> uh, like Robert Heinlein, Ray Bradbury, and 
L. Ron Hubbard. Uh, at the time, L. Ron Hubbard just coming out of the war and uh, a burgeoning science fiction author. Yeah, and it, this is before the uh, the writing of Dianetics and yes, the founding of the very of Scientology. Much. So Parsons is able to convince the police every time they show up for one of these complaints. He's like, look, man, I'm a respectable Caltech scientist. I work for the JPL. These neighbors are just complaining about nothing. But actually, instead, they were performing Gnostic masses inside, which I'm not going to get into, but it's pretty uh, lurid. Uh, <laughs> and they would consume cakes made from menstrual blood, supposedly. Uh, the house next door, fun fact, was actually the former estate of beer baron Adolphus Bush. Oh, this is where like the famous Bush, Bush, yeah, Bush beer and... Uh, Bush Gardens, huh. and so the 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 Bush Gardens were next door to Parsons' place. Uh, this is all part of a strip that was referred to as Millionaire's Row. Now, before any of his uh, rocket launches, like he would supposedly chant Crowley's hymn to Pan. Uh, and so when you when you uh, talk to like you know uh, Parsons' experts about this, they're like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, like it'd be like the same thing as like cheering for your football team or something, like right before you do something exciting. Well, I mean, how weird is it compared to any uh, invocation of a divine being when you're doing something like landing on the moon, right? Right. It's yeah. a, it's like it's, it's There's kind of a clash of, of worlds there. Now, Pan, by the way, or the great god Pan, if, if you will, uh, was of if course... If you're the, an Arthur Macon fan. Yeah, and that is indeed a wonderful story that'll make you see Pan in new ways. But uh, this was a Greek god of wild nature and sexuality, often represented as a satyr, uh, generally accompanied by a flock of nymphs. So during World War II, Parsons is actually convinced to sell the shares that he has in Aerojet. And this amounted to $20,000. And he uses this to basically devote his life full-time to spirituality. Uh, and the reason behind this was actually that Aerojet had sold 51% of its stock to the General Tire and Rubber Company so they could keep up with the increased demand for production that the U.S. military had for them. And these new investors wanted to distance themselves from Parsons. Uh, that he was very eccentric. And this isn't just because of like the occult sex magic stuff, but also just like he was kind of risky on the rocket range as well. So they basically bought him out. He was only 30 years old at the time. So, like, he had started his own company mm-hmm. and divested and, you know, was living the life at 30. So this is where things start to turn a little sour for him. Yeah, and, and I sh- it's impossible not to note here, at 30 years old at the time, he has seven years left to live. Yep. Like, this is a guy who burned brightly for a short amount of time. Younger when he died than you and I are now, Yeah. yeah. Uh, so he had an affair with his wife's 17-year-old sister, Sarah. And so his wife leaves him for the leader of their local OTO lodge. Parsons subsequently becomes the new head of the Pasadena OTO. Then this is when things with L. Ron Hubbard get weird. So he's invited to stay at the Parsonage in 1945. Parsons is super impressed with him. Like he thinks he's again. So like imagine, I imagine both Hubbard and Crowley as being guys with like a a D and D charisma of 18. Like they're super charismatic, but they also see through charisma. So you can tell that like these are two guys that can probably only tolerate each other for short amounts of time. Yeah. Crowley isn't even there. And he thinks that, that, uh, Hubbard is a fraud. He's writing letters to Parsons and everybody at the lodge saying like, don't have anything to do with this guy. He's a total con man, which is ironic. Yeah. Uh, still, Parsons invites Hubbard to become his magic partner, and they try to develop their own sex magic rituals specifically to summon the goddess 
Babylon, also known as the Scarlet Woman. This is all part of uh, Crowley's uh, Thelemic practice. So the idea here is they want to impregnate a woman with the elemental offspring that would be known as the Moon Child, and they call this project Babylon Working. Some people refer to the Moon Child as the Antichrist. I think it's a little different from that, but that's sort of like the shorthand uh, version for just like the general public to understand what they were up to. Yeah, and uh, if I remember correctly, the, the Moon Child uh, and Babylon working, uh, this comes into play in Grant Morrison's The Invisibles. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, there's a whole, uh, actually like a major plot yeah. that, that overarks the whole thing. Yeah, the, they're trying to bring the creation of a Moon about. Child and like sort of uh, bringing about an apocalypse. Yeah. Um, so the same time as all this is going on, Parsons meets Marjorie Cameron, who's described as a woman who's a free spirit with red hair. And he thinks, I did it. I summoned Babylon. She's got red hair. She's the Scarlet Woman. He, uh, Hubbard convinces Parsons in the meantime. He says, give me $20,000. I'm going to invest it in a boat scheme down in Florida, and we're going to get rich. And so he takes this $20,000, and Parsons, this is where I get confused. I don't think they've ever married. So it's Parsons' ex-wife's sister, Sarah. Uh, so she's not his second wife, but maybe she's his girlfriend. Hubbard runs off with her and the money and goes to Mexico. And Parsons is pissed, and he comes after them, and he claims that he cast a spell that invokes a thunderstorm that made Hubbard and Sarah's boat have to force back to land because the storm was so bad. They're, uh, you know, uh, uh, grabbed by the authorities. I think everything basically, like, washes out, like, obviously. Obviously, Parsons isn't pals with them anymore. It doesn't sound like he gets his money back or his girlfriend back, but you know the, they basically sever that relationship. Yeah, and no, no children came about from the from the union, and that means real children or moon children. Yeah, no, as far as we know. But supposedly, Marjorie says she had an abortion. Uh, so there was, but there was no moon child that ever came out of this whole experiment. And then all of this OTO stuff actually is said to be a major influence on Hubbard when he starts Scientology years later. So it's interesting, like, if you look at the two side by side, they have a lot of similar sort of beliefs and practices. It's just like Hubbard dolled it up in a different way. Yeah, again, it kind of comes down to repackaging something that already exists and selling it to a new client uh, and taking older ideas and making them more applicable to the modern individual. So this is kind of the sad part. So... You know, he's he's ousted from Aerojet. He's lived this kind of, like, fantastic occult lifestyle in a mansion with parties. But now, like, he's lost his money to Hubbard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, he, and he has no security clearance. He's well, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so he ends up doing odd jobs to make money, like repairing washing machines, pumping gas, fixing cars being a hospital orderly, and then designing pyrotechnics for the movies. My understanding was he was uh, building squibs. Okay. Uh, and so he worked actually as a chemical researcher for Hughes Aerospace. But in 1950, the FBI investigated him. This is how he loses his security clearance. They accused him of stealing documents from Hughes, and their claim was that he was going to exchange the documents, which were actually rocket plans, to the Israeli government Ah, so he could have admission into Israel uh, and be part of the newly founded government there. He was basically going to establish a rocket program for Israel. He lost all of his privileges and his security clearance and obviously the Hughes Aerospace job. 
as far as I could tell, he and Marjorie, they stay together until his death. They eventually move into the carriage house that's behind the mansion. Now, another account that I read, though, says that they ended up renting a room over a garage on another estate. So I'm not quite sure. It sounds like they were living in a, uh, you know, a small house behind a larger mansion on this sort of millionaire's row area, but I can't tell if it was the original, uh, parsonage house or if it was somewhere else. All right, we're going to take one more break, conduct one more prayer to our uh, pagan gods of advertising, and then when we come back, we will discuss Parsons' death and his legacy. Okay, we're back. So Parsons died in a really horrible way. Like, oh, it was grisly. So it's June 17th, 1952. He's in the garage that he lives above. This is in Pasadena still. Uh, he's mixing chemicals and there's an explosion. The garage blows up. He's still conscious when responders get to the scene, but he's lost his right arm. He couldn't speak because half of his face was mutilated. Now, criminologists who investigated the scene later, they thought that it was caused by fulminate of mercury that was being mixed in a coffee can and then was dropped in the garage. And this burst ignited other volatile chemicals. Imagine a guy like Parsons. He's probably got all kinds of stuff in this lab. And and some of his former co-workers had issues with his safety. Mm, Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, So it's thought that Parsons was working on an order of explosives for one of these movies he was working on. He died a few hours later. Like, they got him to the hospital, but he just, he didn't survive. There's all kinds of speculation around this. Some people say he was assassinated. Some people say it was a magical experiment gone wrong. Most likely, though, from the evidence that was acquired at the scene, he was just careless with these chemicals. Now, Marjorie Cameron, on the other hand, says that that's totally unlike her husband, that he was super safe with his chemicals, and she thinks that he was murdered somehow. Uh, and he was only, as we mentioned, 37 years old when this happens. So, we go on through history, and because of all of this sort of scandalous activity, the writings of Parsons were subsequently purged from the academic papers that were stored at Caltech. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, this is a guy who had a huge influence on an important scientific aspect of American society. In 1972, a crater on the moon is named after him. Uh, Cameron herself was publishing his essays after he died. Uh, and in fact, in 2014, to mark his 100th birthday, a publishing house put out a collection of his poems that he wrote about Marjorie Cameron that were, it was called Songs of the Witch Woman. And it featured illustrations by her, like she drew a company. Oh, yeah, yeah, pictures. I've seen some of these. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I already mentioned uh, Werner von Braun and other individuals, people who worked with Parsons and knew him or just knew of his work and knew how it influenced the trajectory of of rocket technology. They would continue to speak out for him and say, this is a guy who deserves more credit for what he did. Yeah, I mean, so Pendle, who is really, like, as far as I can tell, the go-to source on this. There's another book about him, but it's written by somebody who used a pseudonym. But Pendle is the person who, like, uh, anytime, like, uh, somebody writes an article about, uh, Parsons, they find Pendle. And he actually, you know, is a journalist himself. So, for, for instance, like, Motherboard's piece in 2014 that was all about, like, the, the hundred year anniversary of, of Parsons, that was written by Pendle. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Pendle's idea is like, well, yeah, like, they, they purged him from this sort of academic, uh, history. 
But then, like, when you go and you get, like, official responses from people at the JPL, they say, like, what do you mean? Like, we, we totally recognize that Jack Parsons was part of our founding, you know? Yeah. But so there's a little bit of push and pull there. But really, like, if you want the full story, you're not going to find it uh, in Caltech's, like, archives. Now, I, I like that you, you, you say story because that's one of the things here with a figure like Parsons is that when we look back on history, like, we're not just looking at a list of things. We're looking at at stories and often conflicting stories stories uh, and different uh, different versions of the truth that are that are struggling for dominance and then how do you fit a character like parsons into all of that like what does he what does yeah. he mean right and uh we want we want to look at at someone like him or crowley or any of these other figures we've looked at we want to look at them like prophets or harbingers uh because on the other hand, the idea that ultimately Parsons was just one of many, that Parsons is just another example, maybe a more noteworthy example of someone who did not fit into the the mainstream demands. They, they didn't fit the, the mold that, that people were supposed to be poured into at the time. Yeah. Uh, like that's... That's maybe a, a bit depressing to think of it that way, and we tend to think, oh, well, he was he was unique, he was something special, and he was he, he was something special. He his like I say, his he stands out because his story is 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 different from the, than most of what has uh, has survived to us. Yeah, I think the appeal of him in particular is the sort of dichotomy between the universe of what we think of as rational science combined mm-hmm. with what we think of irrational magic, right? Um, but again, like, going back to this idea that Parsons had of himself, he didn't think of himself as being, like, rational or irrational on either side. He thought all of it was woven yeah. into his identity as being somebody who uh, faced challenges and uh, tried to, like, basically make the impossible possible. Yeah, and there's there's much to say about where Parsons and other similar figures fall into the trajectory of 20th century American culture. There's an excellent uh, Ian Magazine article by Benjamin Breen titled Into the Mystic, From Stonehenge to Silicon Valley, How Technology uh, Nurtured New Age Ideas in a World su- Supposedly Stripped of Its Magic. And I think the title gives much of it away. But uh, the author here argues that there is a direct link between the occult movements of uh, the late Enlightenment and the New Age movements of today, and that it ties into the power of technology. So I want to I read a quick quote from this. He says... Quote, we might also regard the New Age movements of the 1970s as arising from, rather than defeating, this Apollo-era conviction in the power of technology. In the 1930s, while he was immersing himself in the theoretical physics that underpinned the first atomic bomb, for instance, the young physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer was also learning Sanskrit and compulsively reading and comparing himself to ancient Vedic scripture. Similarly, even the rocket scientist Jack Parsons was co-founding the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech. He was becoming immersed in alchemical lore and occultism, performing sex magic in his Pasadena mansion and wrote with a rotating cast of bohemian Los Angeles characters. Parsons would chant Aleister Crowley's uh, hymn to the Greek god Pan before every rocket test, and he claimed his discovery of solid rocket fuel in 1942, which laid the groundwork for the Apollo space program derived from his mystical, quote, into So what's interesting about this passage to me is 
in their description of these connections between um, magical enlightenment and new age movement, they they actually mention two things. Oppenheimer mm-hmm. is also in the Invisibles, yeah, uh, and the whole idea behind like the bomb being somewhat like connected to just the, the logical sort of mystical journey that's in that book, right? But then also, the rocket is named Apollo, yeah, and. Apollean beliefs and worship of the god Apollo are built into a lot of these occult backgrounds that we find when we go digging, you know, back into people like John Dee, etc. Yeah, and even in our modern era, we can't stop naming spacecraft after either gods or at least mythological beings. Right, yeah. Like, uh, we did that episode on NASA's Osiris Rex, yep, named yep. for the Egyptian god Osiris. Or or consider China's uh, U-2, uh, the, the Jade ro- Rabbit. Uh, this is the lunar module, and it was named for the, the mythical animal tasked with the pounding of the elixir of immortality on the far side of the moon. Yeah, so... This is really like an interesting, I think, through line for stuff to blow your mind. And one of the reasons why I thought, like, when I when I first joined the show, I was like, we got to do a Jack Parsons episode. Like, mm-hmm. this is the most stuff to blow your mind of stuff to blow your mindy topics. But uh, because, as we've seen through like John D and uh, other people that we've looked into, these other like countercultural characters involved in science throughout history, there's a through line that does connect the occult and sort of magical thinking and romanticism to what we think of today as being empirical science, right? And they're very much related. I think it's interesting that I don't know necessarily that there's a lot of that going on today. Maybe it's just that, I mean, maybe the John Parsons of today, we don't know that they're having sex magic rituals or something like that. But um, it's just curious to me that science has sort of divorced itself entirely from this idea of more of a renaissance uh, form of knowledge. Yeah, I think that's a good point. All right, so there you have it. Jack Parsons, if you want a deeper dive into uh, either his scientific achievements or certainly his uh, occult interests, um, we, we mentioned uh, the, the book at the top of the episode. Yeah, George Pendle's book. It's Strange Angel, I believe. Yeah, and it is, uh, it's a fantastic read. I've read the whole book, and I, I really recommend it. Um, Pendle is not only like an excellent researcher who went out and found primary resources for this book, but he tells a really compelling narrative, too. Yeah, and uh, hey, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, do so. Like, for instance, is there another uh, counterculture Avenger out there that we need to be uh, covering on the show? Yeah, we let we, us know. Yeah, please do because I feel like um, maybe it feels like we're starting to run out of them. Like we we've covered a lot of them uh, with Lily and D and um, Sasha Shulgin. Yeah. Oh well, we we need a we need to visit uh, the world of Timothy Leary at some point. That is He's true. We yeah. Had, had oh, you, you never did a Timothy Leary episode before. We. It, it, we have an older episode that that discusses him somewhat, okay. but I don't feel I don't feel that we gave him as as, as close a consideration as he's due. Yeah, know? Timothy Leary is like the Captain America of this countercultural Avengers. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, please let us know. So ways to get in touch with us: we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Tumblr, and we're on Instagram. You can write us through all of those social media channels. You can also find them all on stufftoblowyourmind.com. Yeah, and if you want to get in touch with us. Uh, via the old technology, the old ways, uh, you can do so by sending us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. I'm <laughs> sorry.